Heavenly Father, we turn to you acknowledging the tremendous blessings that you uh, give us even now and the tremendous blessings of the inheritance waiting for us kept securely uh, right now in heaven. Uh, And also the reality that our lives are not uh, free from difficulty. In fact, they can be incredibly uh, painful at times. We pray as we approach this issue that we all deal with and wrestle with that, that you would show us what you want us to, to know. You would help us understand it. You would help us also to believe it to be true. And that you would uh, strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief. We do believe, but help our unbelief. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Uh, love. Love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. C.S. Lewis writes that in his book on suffering, The Problem of Pain, where he tackles that issue of trials and suffering. He says, love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. Now that's true, isn't it? If you love someone... Now, you may see past their, their flaws, you may see past their quirks, you may even find them charming. But if someone you love has, has patterns of behavior that are self-destructive, if someone you love has habits that hurt others, if you really love them, you will find yourself doing anything you can to get them to change, to get them to stop, to get them to live a better way, won't you? It's the same with God. It's the same with God. And as we look at trials, uh, this, is what, this, is what he, this is how he approaches it. And this is what Peter is trying to con- convince us and teach us in today's passage. Peter gives us in this passage a, uh, a fourfold anatomy of trials. What are trials really like? What are aspects of them? So we're going to look at these four things this morning. One, the difficulty of trials. Two, the duration of trials. Three, the uh, dross of trials. And fourthly, the doxology of trials. Difficulty, duration, dross, and doxology. Uh, The difficulty of trials. I don't know who started it, who said it first, but there's something that, that, that Christians believe, maybe it's just in America, I'm not sure, but, but someone started this false idea that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't feel pain, you shouldn't cry when you lose someone, you should, should be strong and tough when hard times come, that it, you shouldn't let it affect you. Uh, and honestly, this strikes me as, uh, it reminds me of, of grade school and middle school where, where the boys on the playground would gather together and remember you've seen this happen, just punch each other in the shoulder, take turns uh, until someone cries, and then they're the loser, right? Just, just hit each other in the shoulder time and time again, take turns, and the guy who cries, uh, he, he lost. Uh, it's almost as if someone said the Christian life should be like that. You see how tough you can be. That's how you have faith. But Peter diffuses that uh, because Peter fully acknowledges that, no, we are grieving. We've been grieved by all these various trials that we face. They do grieve us. He doesn't chastise Christians for feeling that grief. He doesn't uh, tell us to be strong and, and not express any emotion. No, he validates it. There's also a, an idea 
that we hear uh, Karl Marx is often quoted as saying uh, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Religion is the opiate of the people. And he's quoted uh, for that when people want to say, look, religion is just made up. Religion is something that was invented because there were suffering. There, was hard th- there were hard things. There were... There were things we couldn't explain, and so people made up religion so that they could numb themselves to the pain and, and get high, if you will, on an alternate fa- fantasy. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. The scripture gives us many examples of those who endure trials. Uh, one such example is Joseph. Joseph from the book of Genesis. And you might not be familiar with Joseph, and if you aren't, I'll just give you the, head, the highlights of Joseph's life. Joseph was his father's favorite son. And he didn't do a good job of concealing that. Uh, he didn't necessarily brag, but he also didn't hide that fact either. And his brothers, who were already envious that Joseph was the, their father's favorite, uh, they got even more envious. And they got angry. And eventually, they took Joseph out to the wilderness. They uh, sold him off into slavery, faked his death so that his father would think, their father would think he was dead. Sold him off into slavery, betrayed by his own brothers. There's nowhere in Scripture that says he was happy about that. No, it was hard. After he was sold into slavery, he was sold into uh, the house of Potiphar. Potiphar, the Egyptian captain of the guard, a royal official. Uh, And while he was a slave, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. Another thing that would bring many of us to immense frustration and anger. He was falsely accused, and then he was wrongfully convicted, wrongfully sentenced, wrongfully imprisoned. Uh, He spent years in prison. Even while he was in prison, he helped other people, made friends, and one of them left, was taken out of prison, promised, Joseph, I'll remember you. What did he do? He forgot Joseph and left him there in prison longer. Again, in no, none of these situations does it ever say that Joseph was just fine with all this. No, of course not. Who would be? Uh, it's important that we acknowledge that trials are hard. Uh, I don't want to dwell on it too, too long, but maybe you're experiencing a lot or some of these things. You know, I haven't experienced all of these things, but, you know, if maybe you've experienced uh, infertility, the thing you want more than anything is to have a child, and you just can't. Maybe the thing that, that you just want more than anything else is to be married, and it's just not happening. Maybe... Uh, you just want financial independence, financial prosperity, and you keep struggling with that. Maybe you are working uh, as harder than you ever have in your career, and you keep getting passed up for promotions and advancement. Maybe you have experienced the loss of a loved one, and you know what that hole in your heart feels like. Those are, they do hurt, and we can't hide that. In fact, there is a notion that it's more glorifying to God if you don't uh, show emotion. But the contrary is true. We see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. What did he do? He wept. And before he wept, uh, it says that he was greatly troubled inside himself. Uh, and, and that sense of greatly troubled was this sense that, no, this is not how things should be. This is a broken world. And so when we grieve, when we express frustration over hard things, 
in a way, we can take it too far, but in a way, we're also giving glory to God and saying, yes, he created a world that is now broken, and this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it will always be. And this is wrong. So it's difficult. But, but, Peter gives us tremendous hope. He gives us uh, hope in this way, because he tells us not only that they're difficult, but the duration of trials. The duration of trials. What does Peter say? He says, now for a little while. Now for a little while. Now there are various trials as well. Uh, Various trials of varying difficulty. Some are incredibly hard and some are near impossible and some are just inconvenient for the moment. But some trials are brief in the sense that they last a few moments. Some trials may last years. Some trials may even last a lifetime. You may see the end of a trial in your life or you may not see the end of the trial until the end of your life. But the thing is, Peter is saying that relative to all eternity, it's just brief. That there will be a day For every trial that we are facing, every hardship, everything that causes us pain, every one of those situations where we will be able to look back and say, that was hard, but now it's over. Every single thing that causes us hurt. We can say, that was hard, but now it's over. Because whether it ends in this life or ends with the end of our life, it one day will end and we will be able to look back. Joseph, when he was in prison, uh, the, the more of the story here is that uh, he was in prison. He had a reputation for interpreting dreams. He was very good at interpreting dreams as a gift that God gave him. And Pharaoh had some dreams that he had a hard time understanding. And so Joseph uh, was finally remembered by his friend from prison. Joseph was summoned by Pharaoh and interpreted Pharaoh's dream and said, Pharaoh, this is what this means. There's going to be years of prosperity, but then years of famine. You need to prepare for the years of famine during the years of prosperity. You need to get someone to organize this for you. And Pharaoh says, very well. You're the guy to do it. And so now Joseph, once a slave, once a prisoner, is now elevated out of those places and even more so is ruling and reigning next to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, you'll be second in command. You'll be second to me only with respect to the throne. And he did this for years, was second in command. And he could look back on those hard times and say, yes, that was hard, but now it's over. It was temporary. Now it's over. I enjoy jogging. But a marathon is the furthest from my list of things I'm interested in. Uh, it, it, I, I've heard people say they like, uh, like marathons, they train for marathons, they enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, but when I hear them describe what the experience of a marathon is really like, I, I say, you, you pay for that? You, you pay a registration fee to undergo that kind of suffering? That's crazy. Did you know that the first guy that, that they modeled the marathon after, who ran 26.2 miles from the battlefield to the marathon, do you know he died when he got there? And yet you are subjecting yourself to this uh, for, for fun. Uh, I've heard that, I've heard your toenails can fall off when you're running a marathon. And I said, what, who would do that? That's crazy. Uh, But I've also heard that those who do it 
do it because it's hard, but then it's over. It's hard, but then it isn't anymore. And the sense when it's over uh, almost overcomes the difficulty that they experienced for that time. Peter gives us that kind of hope. And we feel this in many ways in our lives. Again, we might have a taste of this in this life when, uh, when something you long for finally, finally comes through. When a struggle you have finally ends. When a health concern uh, actually re- sometimes results in you becoming healthier. When your striving to advance in your career does actually bear fruit. That does sometimes happen. And when it does, you could say, that was hard, but now it's over. So that was the difficulty and the duration. Now the dross. The dross of trials. Uh, my wife, Megan, is here with us in the building. I think she's, she's somewhere maybe in the, in the, the cry room uh, with our, our youngest. Uh, but when I proposed to her, I gave her a gift. Uh, and I love her, and so I gave her this gift. But this gift was, uh, it was gold, but it wasn't gold in its original form. Because gold in its original form, it, is, uh, it comes in little flecks and, and little ribbons of gold in other hunks of rock. It's called gold ore, right? And in order to get to the place where it becomes a ring of precious metal that I actually gave to Megan, uh, it has to go through a process of refinement. Now, refinement of gold has been going on for thousands of years. And archaeologists have tried to replicate the process of refinement that they think happened two, three thousand years ago. What, what they would have done, one way, is to take the gold ore and absolutely crush it into bits in, uh, in a, a strong mill. Just take the gold ore and just pulverize it into almost a powder. And then they separate the gold from the other stuff by methods of washing it, uh, power washing, things like that. And then it's not refined enough yet. Then they take the gold powder, the gold dust, and they heat it to an excruciatingly hot temperature. And not just for a little while, but for days on end constantly. Because it takes a long time for everything that isn't gold to burn off, to disappear. And thus the gold is purified, it is refined. Trials refine our faith, Peter says, like fire refines gold. He said, the tested genuineness of our faith that perishes though it is tested by fire. Gold is something that will fade away. Our faith will never fade away. God is always refining it. Our faith is something we will keep with us even into eternity. But it is a process, isn't it? John Newton, you might know that name. He's the guy that wrote... The hymn, Amazing Grace. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, Amazing Grace, that author. He also wrote another hymn. And this hymn, he, he is also autobiographical. And he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. It's a simple prayer, right? A prayer, God, help me to grow. And he says, God answered my prayer, but he did it in such a way has almost drove me to despair. And so you're intrigued at this point. What? God, God, you answered his prayer? Okay. John Newton says, instead of God helping me achieve my goals in life, my goals which were noble, which were godly, which, which were very good goals to have, uh, you dashed all my plans to pieces and you, you're leading me down this path that 
that is frightening. I'm, I don't feel like I'm in control. But you're taking me down this road and, and I don't know what's going on. Why did you ruin my plans, Lord? And then he says, I prayed that, that also you would help me conquer all my temptations and have victory over sin in all these ways that I could live victorious. And instead, he says, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. The hidden evils, the evils that we hide from others. The ones we don't want anyone to see and know about. The evils that we can even hide from ourselves. That God made me feel those hidden evils. And he says, why God? Why are you doing this? Why would you do this? And in the great old school English way, there's this line, Wouldst thou, God, pursue thy worm to death? You know, do you hate me, God? Am I a worm to you? Are, are you trying to kill me? What's going on? This process of being refined is excruciating. And God says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and to break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. You see, as I said before, if you love somebody and they have behavior patterns that are self-destructive or, ha- or habits that harm others, if you love them, you will do all that you can to help them change. And in many ways... In many ways, every idol, in every way, every idol that we have, when we cling to them, it's a pattern of self-destructive behavior. It leads to our destruction. It leads to uh, the, the harm of others as well. Just two quick examples. One, uh, one parenting. We can idolize our children if you're a parent. You can idolize them, make them the center of your life. But you know what will happen if you make them the center of your life? You'll crush them. You'll absolutely crush them. You'll smother them. Uh, okay, what if you make uh, work the center of your life? Your kids will still be crushed if you're a parent. They'll be crushed by your absence. They'll be crushed by your overbearing. Idolatry in general is taking any good thing and making it the ultimate thing in your life, saying that is a thing, that is what I'm reaching for because that is going to make me satisfied, that's going to make me happy, that's going to make me feel fulfilled, that's going to solve all the struggles that I have. And God's saying, no, all those good things that you're turning into ultimate things, pursuing that is, is destroying you and it's destroying those around you and I'm going to help you stop. Now, the process of having your fingers pried off of an idol is not pleasant. It, it hurts. But we can know that God, God's love, is behind it. In fact, how loving is He? One of the things that this refinement process does is help prepare us to enjoy heaven all the more. To help us long for heaven all the more. To help us enjoy uh, God all the more. Think, what banker? Uh, A banker would be happy to keep your inheritance waiting for you. Yes, of course. He's making a little bit of money off of holding that. That's why he's happy to do that. But what banker would help you learn to appreciate the inheritance you're about to get? Bankers don't do that. Uh, Most don't. I don't know. Uh, But God not only keeps the inheritance waiting for us, but he's helping us to treasure not the things of this world that won't satisfy, that only lead to self-destruction and lead to hurting others. He, he helps us let up go of those things and to truly treasure our heavenly inheritance 
waiting for us. So that's the dross. Then the doxology, finally. Doxology, of course, means, uh, means a praise, a song of praise to our God, that, that God will receive praise because of all this refinement. That our faith that is tested and, and proved genuine, uh, and it's proved genuine because of the one in whom we have faith, is proved genuine because God is proved to be truly faithful. But all this results in God receiving glory. And here's something that, that may help us understand how this works. Uh, there's a now an old movie that used to not be so old to me, uh, Karate Kid. Karate Kid, a wonderful movie. Uh, it's your, your classic, you know, make you feel good at the end kind of movie. Daniel is a teenage boy who wants to learn karate. And he gets set up with his instructor, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi is a somewhat quiet, mysterious man. But someone said that he was really, really good. He's a good instructor. And so he said, fine. Daniel's mother says you're going to go. So Daniel comes after school. And the first day, Mr. Miyagi says, all right, here is a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. Paint my fence. And Daniel says, okay, maybe this is my payment. You know, a barter system. He trains me and I paint his fence. Maybe that's how this works. I paint today. He teaches me tomorrow. Whatever, I'll paint. So he starts painting and Mr. Miyagi says, no, 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 no. Not like that, like this, right? Remember this action? Remember this? All right, good. Uh, the same way, and he insisted, kept an eye on him, made sure that Daniel was doing it the exact right way every time. And at the end of the evening, when the fence was finally painted, Daniel's arms are sore and, and it hurts. Um, Mr. Miyagi says, come back again tomorrow. And so Daniel does. He comes back tomorrow. And Mr. Miyagi says, uh, sand the floor. And so he sands, no, 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 not like that, in the circular motions, Right? In a certain way, I want you to sand the floor. And Daniel's starting to get a little irritated. When am I going to learn karate, right? And goes, goes home again that night, very, very tired. He comes back the third day after school, and Mr. Miyagi says, all right, now wax the car. And there's not just one car. There's many cars, right? We've seen this. Uh, and not just a certain way, but wax it, wax on, wax off, right, right? Remember this? It's all coming back. And Daniel, at this point, is incredibly angry. He's indignant that Mr. Miyagi would be using him and wasting his time in this way. And so he says, you know, I'm done. I'm done with your karate training. Forget it. You know, I'm sorry I ever met you. And Mr. Miyagi says, one more time, show me. No brushes, no brushes. Show me, paint the fence. And so Daniel begins, the mo- I mean, he, he worked it into muscle memory, right? So he, he knows paint the fence like he could do it in his sleep. And at that moment, Mr. Miyagi attacks Daniel. And, and Daniel realizes that this motion is actually, a, apparently, in Hollywood at least it is, a very effective way to defend yourself against an attacker. He says, show me, sand the floor. Same thing, same defensive, show me, wax the car, you know, wax on, wax off, okay. And something changed for Daniel. He realized that all that incredible frustration, all of those nights that he would be there late, doing things that had absolutely nothing in his mind to do with his improvement or with anything serving him, uh, all of a sudden it clicked. And he realized that the entire time he was being taught how to defend himself very proficiently. Daniel realized that, but another thing that happened is that Mr. Miyagi 
received honor and glory. Because in Daniel's mind, he realized this is not some quiet, irrelevant old guy. This is a proficient master. And not only is he a master, he's, he's good. Because he has taught me in a way that, in the end, was very kind. So Daniel comes to the point where he can trust Mr. Miyagi's instruction. He can trust his methods. He's willing to try anything. And, uh, and you know what happens next? Now, it's been 30 years, so if I say spoiler alert, it doesn't count, okay? You've had 30 years to watch it. So he goes to this karate championship, this, this tournament, and he eventually wins the whole championship. And so Mr. Miyagi is seen not just by Daniel, but by the whole world, so to speak, as an excellent, masterful, and good teacher. That's kind of what it'll be like. There's a small glimpse of what it'll be like for all of us to gather around the throne, our faith having been refined. Time and time again, those of us who trust in Christ, being able to say, yes, God has been faithful. God has come through time and time again. We will all gather around the throne and say, you are God. And there is no one like you. Joseph when he was brought up from prison. After years of being in charge, he finally is able, uh, probably eight, nine, ten years, he finally meets his brothers again. His brothers are sent to Egypt to buy food, and Joseph is interacting with them, and at one point he's able to say, look, I know you meant what you did for evil, but I can see now that God meant it for good. Joseph was refined in his faith. You know, back to that C.S. Lewis quote, love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. I will confess, and maybe some of you are on the same page with me, that when I first read this, the word demand just hit me wrong. Uh, Love demands the perfecting. It feels like God, you know, sees the problems in me, And he just wants to, you know, like he demands that I be purified. And and until until I'm I'm better, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And so all these trials are just, you know, oh, God God is is, is far from me. God doesn't like me. All these trials are practically useless. You know, God doesn't like me. He's, He's so, he's just, you know, thuggish. But what we see, again... On the contrary, is that, is that actually God isn't distant, but very close. Here's a situation that made me think about this. I, um, I have a son who's almost three, and he loves to play outside. And if there's mud, he'll find it. If there are leaves, he'll find those, and he'll do the mud first and the leaves, so he's all, you know, completely messy. And, <clears throat> of course, after playing, he'll want to come inside... And, and so he'll come to the back door, and the first thing he wants to do is just basically touch everything. I'm like, no, 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 you can't touch everything. First, you must be purified. Uh, so uh, I, I pick him up, and I was reflecting on this and realized that I did this. I pick him up, not, you know, like this. I pick him up <laughs> like he's infected, and I'm carrying him um, <clears throat> as far away from me as possible um, because he does have a reach, and, um, and I take him straight to the bath, I put him in and clean him there. 
Uh, but I realize that that is not the way that God is with us when we need cleansing, when we need perfecting, when we need trials. In fact, the opposite is true. He didn't keep arm's length, but he came down from earth or from heaven to earth uh, and experienced hardship. He experienced the messiness of this life. When God the Son became man, uh, he experienced frustration and humiliation. He experienced loss. When he was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he cried. And he said, this is not how it should be. But he knows what that is like. Uh, He knows what it's like to be betrayed by those very close to him. He knows what it's like to be denied by those close to him. Uh, Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, and his sentence was wrongfully carried out. Just like Joseph was cut off from his father and mother for that time, Joseph had no idea if he would ever see his, his parents whom he loved ever again. In the same way, Jesus, as he hung on the cross, our sins were placed on him. And his father, our father, God, Uh, turned his face away because he could not bear the sight of our sin. And so Jesus cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus submitted himself to that willingly for us. After serving his unjust sentence, Joseph was raised up from prison uh, to become the savior of all the starving in, in not just Egypt, but in all the world. That all who were hungry could come to him and receive food and live in an even greater way. After serving his unjust sentence, Jesus rose from the grave and became the savior of all the spiritually hungry who would come to him to be filled. You know, if you look at this plant, this plant doesn't need to be told the right things about God. It needs water. In the same way, We don't need just to know the right things about God. We need God himself. We need the living water. We need to be rooted deeply in him. And he is not distant. He is near. And if any of us are still struggling with how how could there be a God if uh, with all these evil things happening, with all this hardship and pain that happens, uh, I'm going to close with this prayer by Edward Shilito called Jesus of the Scars. And it says, Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. And we ask that with a little bit of trepidation uh, after knowing how it is you strengthen faith. But we know that you desire as well that our faith be strengthened and that you are not from, distant from us when we face trials of all different kinds. We pray, Lord, that you would help us understand and believe these truths, but also that you would be very near to us and, and help us realize how near to us you are in the midst of these hard things. Lord, we pray that you would, Father, protect us from telling ourselves trite things when we're facing hard times. And Lord, protect us from telling others trite things when they are facing hard times. But 
Lord, be near to us and use us, we pray, in the lives of others to bring your presence near to them. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.